Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. COVID-19 infections and deaths are dramatically higher in low-income communities of color. Home turf for Dr. Haval Kelly. COVID-19 is just unmasking the unhealthy status of people. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, a frontline doctor and advocate for Georgia's immigrant and refugee populations on supporting and encouraging some of Georgia's most vulnerable people. My advice to many people don't feel helpless. You could be part of this solution as an individual level. Plus historian Grace Hale on the unlikely Georgia town that launched the alternative music scene and revised some tired stereotypes. I think that was a huge part of the appeal of REM in that period, not just in Athens, but across Georgia, across the whole Southeast, was that way that they were presenting a different way to be a white Southerner. The transformation of Athens, coming up. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Last weekend, Georgia hit a grim milestone, 5,000 deaths from COVID-19 and related illnesses. That's more than any other conditions aside from heart disease or cancer, according to the CDC. It's been widely reported that infections and deaths are disproportionately higher among people of color. But studies published in the Journal of American Medicine reveal an even sharper contrast in low-income non-white communities, where residents died of the virus at nine times the rate of residents of largely white, more affluent areas. Those numbers gravely concern Dr. Haval Kelly. He's a cardiologist focused on prevention and health advocacy for underserved communities in the Atlanta metropolitan region, with a focus on refugee and migrant populations. Haval, really great to have you back with us. Oh, thank you for having me here. Appreciate it. Well, you have been a vocal advocate for underserved and refugee populations that goes beyond your role as a doctor. So what are you hearing from people in the community? What are they up against? You know, this is a very interesting time because all the thing we observed that cardiovascular disease, uh, cancer, and uh, preventive care that's impacting the low income and underserved, only during COVID we noticing that all of this is coming to the rise and uncovered. You know, we already knew that people from low income communities have worse outcome and across major diseases, and COVID is just exposing that and showing those disparities. You know, I, you know, yeah, I'm from the Kurdish community, and being a Kurd and being part of the refugee community, you act like a small town doctor. Everyone knows you because they only know one or two doctors like you. So during mm-hmm. the rise of COVID, we get a call from people saying, yes, afraid of their family, afraid of losing their job. So it's been a very interesting uh, environment to deal with as a physician and also as a social advocate. Yeah, so you go beyond the role of the physician. What, what have you been doing in terms of social advocacy so far? Well, you know, I think the best thing ever happened to me is actually go to be a Morehouse School of Medicine, uh, you know, MD. When I graduated from there, I learned about the importance of social advocacy, that medicine goes beyond the exam room. We shouldn't be just treating patients in a clinic. We should go beyond an advocate for people. And during my training at Emory, it just honed down that perspective and helped me to expand. One of the first things we did early in March, you know, when the cases were going up in the first wave, a lot of the, you know, the underserved community, especially immigrants, refugees, and poor Americans, they had no access to any kind of form of education. COVID-19 was just something they heard about in the news. 
So people didn't know how to transmit. So we were able to translate material in different languages and simplify it in English format that everyone could understand. And me and my wife, we just kept calling the community across Atlanta and outside of Atlanta through text messaging, you know, using social media to educate the community about COVID-19 because we believe prevention was the first key to address the, the rise. Well, you have been monitoring research on how social determinants affect health outcomes in many instances. One of them is health literacy, pretty much what you're talking about, the ability to understand and navigate a healthcare system. What are some ways that that affected how the pandemic progressed within these communities? Well, you know, the first thing was most people didn't know what COVID-19 was. And I remember early in March, a lot of the community, especially in Clarkston, like, you know, we're not aware of any testing format. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know what the symptoms were. Uh, you know, and back then, testing was limited unless you go into the hospital or the urgent care clinic. And I still think there's a lack of education a lot of those communities still until today uh, because I see that, like, people just don't know a lot of the updates on the disease and what the new guideline says, how to return to work. Well, we do know that there are cultural differences in how communities think about health and healthcare, whether it is the experience that they had in their country of origin or, or how much faith they may put in the medical system itself. How, how did these pre-existing ideas or beliefs impact care and the spread of the virus? Well, you know, most people didn't realize when they hear about a virus infection, they felt like it was a shameful thing to have. I never I never forget that when someone called me, he's like, hey, I cannot discuss something with you, but I haven't told anyone in my family that I might be positive of COVID-19. I'm like, you can't do that. This is not something to be ashamed of. You got to tell your community and you got to tell people who visit you that you have COVID-19. They can't come visit you. I think that was something that I noticed initially with the fear of telling people that you have the virus. And then two, you know, some cultures, you know, they're very welcoming, very socially connected. How do you tell people not to come visit you to your house and tell them we can't have engagement party or a graduation party for our kids? So there's a very hard thing for a lot of immigrant community to accept the new changes of the virus, you know, infection. But one thing that we notice in the immigrant refugee community, they actually value a lot the opinion of expertise and educated people. So when they see us in the community speaking up, they actually were more receptive to listen and follow the guidelines. Also, socioeconomic status is a huge factor in COVID-19 risk. So there are many low-income families that may have to choose between possible exposure in a job considered essential or not putting food on the table. But as a doctor, only so much of your patients' lives you, you can control or advise, even if they do respect the experts. So how do you advise or support patients through these kind of decisions? It's very tough. Like I said, like, you know, what's going on with our system, it just exposed some of the issue we have. You know, I never forget that when someone called me, says, hey, uh, you know, I got exposed, but, you know, I'm, I'm afraid about losing my job. And I know other people who are not getting tested because they're afraid to lose their job. So they're just rotting mm -hmm. the infection. It's very tough. You know, how do you tell someone who is the main provider for their family that they can maybe out of work for two weeks and I mean, I, I grew up in one of the poorest communities in Atlanta. And I remember I was afraid to get sick because, and I would ignore sometimes symptoms about a headache or something bad going on with me because I don't want to lose my job. So I understand those challenges. Now I'm a physician on the other side. I'm trying to figure out a way to help people focus on prevention. Maybe like, you know, if we could prevent people from getting the infection, they're not going to be losing their job. It's hard for us, especially talking from a position of privilege. It's tough to say that. 
Dr. Haval Kelly is my guest. He's a cardiologist who focuses on serving under-resourced populations of refugees and migrants in the Atlanta metropolitan area. Well, you you have known that life. You were a dishwasher when you started going to medical school. So what are you thinking now as somebody who has been in that position? How do you even begin to advise people to make different kinds of choices? You know, uh, the term frontline is pretty broad. You know, if you're a physician and you're on a frontline, you at least if you get exposed and you can't go to work, you still have insurance and have some disability form. But what about those people who are cashiers and restaurant workers who don't have access to any insurance? You know, it's a totally different frontline job that do. And I think I respect those guys. Uh, it's, it's just it's hard. But one thing that I learned is during when I became a physician and working in clinic like Grace Village, which is provide free care to let people know that there are free options that you could take advantage of. And maybe if you get tested once a year and check your cholesterol and blood pressure, you could prevent progression of like cardiovascular disease and other issues. And maybe COVID will make people more be aware of the health than instead of ignoring it. Because I remember I ignored it when I was a dishwasher. Hmm. Well, I want to go back to the other frontline workers, the healthcare workers who are your colleagues. We're looking at a second wave now of cases, though some might even argue that the first wave never actually ceased. So what are you hearing from colleagues? How are they holding up? And are there concerns over burnout? I think one of the easiest frontline to tackle is what we do on a regular day. Like we go and see patient and are we trying to protect ourselves you know, while doing it? That's something we got trained and learned about. But I think the new challenge is now, when I go back home, how do I prevent bringing something to my family? My parents live with me and they're high-risk people. I have a little baby, you know, he's, you know, I'm not sure how the infection will affect them. So me and my wife, we both are physicians. So we come back from work, we change in our garage, and then we go right away, mm. take a shower. That's something we never expected to do. And then, then the fourth challenge is, I think, people, our healthcare workers are dying from this. You know, if you someone in training going to medicine, you know, and you get affected and got disabled from this, how are you going to supplement that all this education you invested in your life? You know, there's a lot of challenges going on. And the last thing is dealing with the misinformation. That's another frontline, I think, that doctors and healthcare workers have not had much time to focus on. So we need to be more involved in educating people of wearing a mask, you know, washing the hand and social distancing. Increasingly, we're understanding that COVID-19 can have long-lasting effects for even survivors. It's not just a respiratory, but a vascular inflammatory disease as well. So now you, as a practicing cardiologist, how is this hitting patients that you may have worked with for years? And how has it changed your practice? Well, that's a great question. Uh, And I think what I learned from looking at the data is, I think COVID-19 is just unmasking the unhealthy status of people. I mean, if you someone consider yourself healthy and you show up to like, you know, the hospital COVID-19 and you have worse complication, it might show that you actually, you know, have diabetes or obesity or some heart disease that you have not probably got diagnosed with. So I think COVID is going to be an interesting disease process for the next century that we're going to learn about. The next century. It just, we don't know much about the disease. We're understanding the process. But right now we only like what the, the process started in December in China now in August. So we need to look at the outcome like the next 5, 10, 20 years and see what COVID is affecting people. And that's why Mm -hmm. I tell people, be patient, you know, don't think you're immune to disease. You know, I think 
simple thing like wearing a mask, washing your hand, and avoiding large gardening might actually prevent you from having long-term complications in the future that we're not aware of yet. How about the future of medicine? You know, this back-to-school season, we've got undergraduate medical students volunteering their time in hospitals in some cases. Or in July, residents entering these hospitals as MDs for the first time. How, how is this shaping young minds just beginning their careers in medicine? You know, there's an interesting data that came out like this month. Actually, the number of applicants to medical school went up by like 10% according to some of the data. So actually Hmm. people, I feel like they're more motivated to go medicine because they're seeing how it is impacting not just patients, impacting community and population. And we might get even a bigger wave of people who are really dedicated to want to serve. And it's going to be challenging. But I think this is a great opportunity for us to focus on telemedicine and teleeducation. A lot of the knowledge we learned in medical school, you know, early on could be also, you know, educated through, you know, some kind of telemedication, teleformat. And I think that's going to be part of uh, all the medical school and education system to be more innovative. Plus, you know, if you could really have a good uh, virtual space for education, then you could actually bring that same education to people from underserved communities. I think there's a great opportunity for the educational system actually to build something very strong and accessible to many during this COVID-19 era. What do you think people least understand about the communal effect of COVID-19 and possible responses? I think one of the things about what COVID-19 is doing to many is making people feel helpless in a part of defeating this virus. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. The city of Clarks really did something great. You know, while the government and CDC trying to figure out all the guidelines and bring some of the you know, resources in, the city of Clarkson came together with a nonprofit like Ethne Grace Village and the churches, along with Georgia State you know, PRC Center, came together and actually started building you know, a task force. One, they did a lot of testing on the ground. Two is they provided health education format. I mean, I tell you, over the last five weekends, some of our pre-med and pre-health students passed out over 8,000 masks and hand sanitizer to almost 10 apartments in Clarkson. This is a prime example that everyone could be engaged in part of decreasing the rate of the virus infection spread and also the, some of the complication. So I think my advice to many people, don't feel helpless. You could be part of this solution as an individual level. You also be part of this organization that actually doing some great work on the ground. Haval Kelly, he's a cardiologist focused on advocacy and improving health outcomes for underserved patients in the Atlanta metro area, especially now during the coronavirus pandemic. Haval, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Stay with us for Grace Hale on the musical legacy of the cool town that shaped music across genres. On Second Thought, heads to Athens next. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. That is Private Idaho, one of several hits from the B-52s, a band that rode its rambunctious DIY spirit, towering wigs, and affection for retro dance music to the top of the charts. The one-of-a-kind band also laid the foundation for a prolific alternative music scene in the very cool town of Athens, Georgia. Grace Elizabeth Hale was an undergrad and graduate student at the University of Georgia during the heady days of the Athens scene. She's now professor of American Studies and History at the University of Virginia and author of Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. 
In Athens in the 80s, if you were young and willing to live without much money, anything seemed possible, Hale writes in her Introduction to Cool Town. We were unlikely people in an unlikely place. No one who mattered thought we could make a new kind of American bohemia. I spoke with her for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series and asked her to describe Athens in the late 1970s and early 80s when this transformation was just beginning. One of the main takeaways I think from this story is that Athens is the place that made it clear to young people across the country that you could do something interesting and creative, important wherever you were. You did not have to move to um, a bigger city, New York, San Francisco, perhaps Boston. And there certainly had been bohemias in America before and in other parts of the world. But Athens is the place that made it clear that there were no limits on you, even if you stayed in a small place that nobody had ever thought of as producing any kind of interesting art or music before. So in the past, creative people had to go elsewhere. I mean, they thought that they did, right? They thought that they did. And um, even a key, key figure in the Athens scene, if there is one key figure, I would say it's Jeremy um, or in his early days, Jerry Ayers. I mean, he moved to New York City um, and was a part of the factory scene around Warhol. So people really felt like they had to move. The B-52s really felt like they had to move to take their career up to the next level. Um, they helped to start the scene in Athens, uh, but they it didn't move fast enough to really carry their career along. They really felt like they had to go to New York, that that was the center. And that was the way many, many people felt in the country. If you wanted to make it in music, in rock music, you, you had to go to New York. That's the song 52 Girls by the B-52s, released in 1978 as the B-side to their first single and one of their most famous tracks, Rock Lobster. So at the time, Athens was cheap, fairly isolated, and a college town known for Bulldogs football and fraternity and sorority life at UGA. I think it's hard for some listeners to imagine life for small-town creatives in the pre-digital age. So how did they access ideas and art and culture and music back then? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting part of the story. And for those of us who weren't born digital, maybe easier to grasp, but for for younger folks, a little bit harder to, to grasp. But the absolute key thing for the scene was the fact that the University of Georgia libraries were wide open. You didn't have to be a student to use the library. These were the ways that people had in that period to actually watch old films or films from other parts of the world or to listen to music across the history of musical recordings. We didn't have anything like Spotify or Apple Music or any of the other ways. And so the library was for the kids that the young folks that made the Athens scene. It was like their internet. It was their place to go to be inspired, to um, to find out things about the world, and also even when they needed practical information. I mean, when the B-52s were being approached by record um, companies um, before they signed uh, their, their big deal, they went, uh, Ricky Wilson went to the University of Georgia Law Library to look up contracts to figure out how to negotiate their contract. So from the practical to, to the more aesthetic and artistic um, and even philosophical, the libraries were absolutely key. I love that you mentioned Ort's Oldies, which was a record store, which was like the Library of Congress in the pre-internet age. 
it is hard to imagine like how specific it was that you had to seek out information in a much different way. But I want to go back to what you said about Jerry or Jeremy Ayers. It depends on what period of life you're talking about for him. In these origins of the Bohemia outside of New York or San Francisco, this was not necessarily just a magical Big Bang, but there it was by design on some level, right? I mean, there was a yeah. desire to build a new Bohemia. What, what did Jerry Ayers bring? Well, he was really an amazing figure. His dad had been a professor at the University of Georgia, um, religion professor there. He'd grown up in Athens, and he knew Ricky Wilson and Keith Strickland, um, who went on, of course, to found the B-52s. He knew them. They were younger than him, several years younger than him. He knew them growing up. And Jerry had connected with the gay scene in Athens, which was actually, again, for a small town, pretty vibrant, um, even bef much before the music scene, um, connected to the art school. And so Jerry was connected to those older people. He was connected to younger people like Keith and Ricky. And after he went up to New York City, he invited Keith and Ricky to come up there and visit him. And they got to go to the factory and hang out with the famous drag queens like Jackie Curtis, uh, Jerry at the time was one of Andy Warhol's drag queen superstars. He went by the name Silva Thin. And they just got to be a part of this incredible, like, creative milieu there. Um, and so when they came back to Athens, they were like, we're going we're gonna to do that here. We want to we just keep that spirit going here. Why can't we just do that here? So they would dress up and just wear completely insane outfits and parade around the town or put on an impromptu performance in an all-night laundromat. They would just do the craziest thing, set up their furniture from their house beside the road and just sit there all day in a kind of like Dada art project. Um, they, they, they just brought this spirit. And I think people are now so used to Athens having that kind of eccentric music, art kind of world. But back then, this was really, really wild. You know, it really, really stood out in a town that was really mostly known for football and for the, for the Greek system at the university. My guest is Grace Elizabeth Hale, historian and author of Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. Well, Grace, as you put it in the book, many Southern college towns tolerated eccentrics if they were white and kept their sexuality to themselves. But this gender play that Keith and Ricky and Jerry were promoting or, or living right, right on the streets and sometimes the intersections of Athens, what did that allow and how did that extend to other ways of thinking or questioning the givens, which was a mantra for this budding scene? Yeah, I think that's another thing that will surprise a lot of people who are later fans of our of, of Athens music and think about REM and, and bands that came after just how queer the early scene was. I think it's really important to realize just what an incredible figure, somebody like Ricky Wilson, who was out to his friends in high school in 1970. And just to put that into perspective, that is the same year that Athens finally fully into, racially integrated the schools and they shut down the separate black high school. That is the same moment that he is out in high school to his friends. And I think that's really pretty, pretty astonishing, frankly. So, um, so they really uh, started off in a mode that was very much about putting that queerness, that playing with gender categories absolutely out there. And for people that knew anything about the kind of drag queen world that, that they had sort of interacted with in New York, it's really clear that the two women, Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson, are the ones that are dressing up like drag queens in New York. 
who are reported mm-hmm. dressing up like women. So the layers of play there are really pretty, pretty astonishing. You can, you can get a little dizzy thinking about that, but it's really a hugely important part of their work. Well, and I think also that sort of punk rock creed that anyone could make music, uh, that, you know, you didn't have to be a professional. This band of sissies and girls, I think someone calls them, they have their first first gig at a house party on Valentine's Day in 1978, which is now the stuff of legend from people that you spoke to. The, the photo on the cover of Cool Town, is that that first gig? That is the first gig. It's just amazing. <laughs> their wigs are beyond the beyond. Apparently those are actually um, muffs, like fake fur uh, hand muffs that they're wearing on their heads. But <laughs> they work. They work. They really work. And of course, Kate and Cindy are so beautiful. So that, you know, that really carries it as well. Well, but you also propose that there's a deeper meaning in wearing these thrift store clothes and wigs and playing surf rock, that it's not a copy of the past, but it's a comment uh, on the past. So can you parse that out for us? Yeah, um, I think that one of the things that people forget when they listen to, you know, the B-52s over the years, or um, especially some of their sort of mid-period albums, that they, they weren't this kind of slick retro group at the start. They were very, very punk. Um, and they were ragged and rough, and that kind of raggedness makes it clear that they're actually playing with pop music themes. I mean, this is a huge part of music today, right? It's so much a part of pop music and hip hop and all of this kind of ways people sample and play with tropes. Um, but the B-52s were doing that in 1978. So there, there, is a, there is a kind of way in which they're playing and quoting some of these surf music gestures, right? So they're commenting on the fact that that pop culture from the 50s and 60s is exciting in its own right and also limiting, but in their minds, more interesting than the pop culture of their moment of 1978, that there's a kind of depth and an interest and a wackiness that they think is freeing and fun in these older forms. So the B-52s and R.E.M., of course, the big success stories of the Athens music thing. But for you, Pylon was more emblematic of the ideas behind the scene. Let's hear something from that band. This is their first single recorded in 1979. It's called Cool. There's a link here between Pylon and the influence of the UGA art department. Why, why was that connection so critical? Well, you, um, Pylon is a, is a band that is formed uh, by four art students. And so that's a huge part of it. Um, and originally they are thinking about the band as a kind of art project, as yet another example of the kind of thing they can do in the art school world where they play with different mediums art students now work across all mediums. But then it was actually a pretty radical and new thing for art students to think that they could just try their hand at any medium. You were supposed to specialize. You were supposed to pick up your craft and really, really hone it. And so for people like Michael Lahusky and Randy Bewley from Pylon, 
creating a band was just another form of art. It was like, it was like performance art. And it was the instruments, musical instruments were just other kinds of tools they could learn to manipulate. So that is very much the kind of attitude that they applied to their band. Um, and they were quite serious about it in a kind of art world way of we have to do something original. So we don't, the fact that we can't play our instruments is a good thing because we're going to learn to play them in an original way by teaching ourselves. I think the reason they're so emblematic or so crucial to the Athens scene is because they really cement that connection to the art school, which is so important to the scene, but they also stay in Athens. And I think that, you know, the scene might've just been a kind of blip of a period where uh, the B-52s launch out of Athens and some bands are created in their wake, but who knows whether that would have actually remained a kind of, you know, thriving scene, but Pylon um, achieves a, a really good deal of critical acclaim and underground fame, if not mainstream fame, and they choose to stay in town. And not only do they choose to stay in town, but in 1983, they choose at, at what seems like to their fans, the height of their fame. They've just opened for U2 on a tour across North America. Um, which which they hated, by the way. Of course they did, because they're art students. And uh, they decide to quit. They're like, we don't want to do this anymore. It's not fun. We did we did the art performance piece we wanted to do, and now we're done. That sort of mode of of ending the life of the band it creates such a myth that becomes yeah. absolutely central to the early Athens scene. Grace Elizabeth Hale is my guest. She's author of the new book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. We're listening to another song by Pylon. This is the B-side to Cool. It is called Dub. We're heading into a short break, but stick around for more on the indie scene that came straight out of the South and one of the biggest names to emerge from Athens, R.E.M. That's when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott. And we're back with more of On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, jumping right back into a conversation with author Grace Elizabeth Hale, recorded for the Atlanta History Center's Virtual Author Talk series. Her new book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture, delves into the influential music scene that emerged from this relatively small Georgia town. Before the break, we were talking about two seminal Athens bands, the B-52s and Pylon, and how they typified the gender play and the punk attitude and DIY ethic of the Athens scene. But around the same time, another band called R.E.M. was beginning to play gigs. We're listening to Wolves Lower, a song from their 1982 EP, Chronic Town. While the B-52s and Pylon were playing dates in New York City, R.E.M. was gaining a following at Athens clubs and with the fraternity crowd. They were not considered hip in Athens. And unlike some of the others, they started with some musical chops. Mike Mills and Bill Berry had been in a band that played country clubs and bar mitzvahs and suits and ties back in Macon. I asked Grace Hale how R.E.M. modeled a different path forward in the music business. So R.E.M. is really interesting because... 
Um, they have Bill Berry and Mike Mills who really come in with knowledge, not just knowledge about how to play their instruments. Mike Mills' mother was a music teacher of all things, and he played multiple instruments growing up, and he and Bill Berry played in bands together in high school, as you said. But Bill Berry actually worked for the booking company that worked with Capricorn Records. And so he got this job. Imagine you're a high school kid who likes rock and roll going to the Atlanta airport to pick up big, you know, music stars and drive them back to Macon to the headquarters of Capricorn Records. So he just kept his eyes open, his ears open and learned everything he could. Um, and Ian Copeland ended up coming there to work, who had actually, whose brother was in um, the police at the time and whose other brother founds IRS Records, which of course goes on to be REM's mm -hmm. label. So he not only has this knowledge of the music business, but they really have connections, right? The reason that they're about six months old as a band and they open for the police in Atlanta is because they, you know, they know the Copelands, right? They, they have those kind of connections. What I think is really funny or interesting from the Athens standpoint is how much they have to kind of deny all of this to make it in this world where amateurism and being an art student is the thing that everybody is so enamored of. And this idea of like having honed a craft, having practiced, having played your instrument all your life, that's just too conventional. And so you can see them in their early interviews with people like from the red and black downplaying their musical experience. Now what, what musicians do that, right? So, <laughs> um, but also Michael, Michael Stipe is an art student. So they have that connection to that world through Michael Stipe. And Peapock is the quintessential record store guy, right? With the giant collection of old records. So they really have like all this knowledge in these four guys um, that really comes together in an interesting way. But it is funny how the first year or so that they're playing in Athens, the sort of older scene folks are very skeptical. Oh, there's frat people at these parties. And then of course, when they go out into the world and are becoming important in 82, 83, people think of them as so alternative, so indie, so bohemian, Michael Stipe's mumbling. It's a completely different thing. Um, you will probably not believe me when I tell you the early recordings of Stipe singing, he sounds like he's trying to do Elvis Presley. <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around that right now. But I want to pull back a little bit and talk about this rejection of, you know, traditional American aspirations, the scene of suburban kids remaking themselves in thrift store clothes and living in rickety old houses and mostly middle class folks really doing working class jobs and living for cheap. But in a number of ways, still somewhat following that dominant culture. It is a very white scene, for one. Uh, bohemian women, you say, playing 1950s housewife roles. So how, how deeply did this rhetoric about constructing a new world go? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that you really have to keep in mind is that for people that were participating in the scene, it looked so much better than any of their other options. So the trick is to sort of acknowledge the limitations, the ways in which the scene um, recapitulates some of the sexism of the larger culture, for sure. You know, back then there actually was a mainstream, a powerful mainstream in America. Um, and that world in, in the South at the time for women was very constraining in ways that the scene was not. And so there's more freedom to do things that you wouldn't have been able to do. So many Athens bands have women members, for example, and that is hugely the result of the stress on amateurism. 
which actually makes space for women who are less likely to have spent their entire, you know, junior high and high school years noodling on a guitar in their room than men, traditionally in this moment. Um, some of them did. Sure, there are always exceptions, but the amateurism really made space for them. And the same thing is true, I think, on the, on the racial front. The mainstream culture at the University of Georgia was very, very outwardly racist. And so the fact that the scene uh, rejected that kind of explicit white supremacist, kind of neo-Confederate apologistic um, southerness, which was very, very strong in this period, right? I mean, this is the time period, of course, when people are waving Confederate flags at football mm -hmm. games, for heaven's sake, is, is an advance over what, had, what the other option is, and yet at the same time, not where we'd want it to be today, if that makes sense, in terms of, mm -hmm. in terms of race. Um, there are people of color in the scene, but it is a mostly white scene, and that is in large part, I would argue, because they're drawing from a mostly white college student population. Um, the second thing, though, is that the scene is not very attractive to the working class African Americans who live in Athens. 30 to 33% of the population of the town is African American at this time, mostly working class African Americans. Their musical world is very much the opposite of amateurism. It's about craft. It's about being an amazing, amazing performer, practicing all your life, right? Really, really playing your instrument well. Those people are like, we're not going to go to the 40 watt and pay money to see somebody who doesn't know how to play. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's why would you want to do that? So there is a kind of mismatch there in terms of what they're thinking music and artistry should be. And that mm -hmm. has an effect as well. And I think you said in the book something like leaving through thrift store bins was not exotic to them either. There is this kind of white middle class privilege in elective poverty and, and also this sort of push and pull with Southern identity. So as Athens is becoming a brand, some band members are cranking up their Southern accents on stage or the image of the Southern eccentric or rube even when they're playing in other places. R.E.M. has an interesting relationship with their southernness, which we can trace back to their first album, Murmur. Let's hear the song from that record that really put them on the map, Radio Free Europe. They initially embraced this sort of southern mystique, you know, the kudzu on the album cover, the Flannery O'Connor-ness of it all, and, and then they distanced themselves from it. So what was their relationship to the scene and even the more problematic aspects of the South? Yeah, you know, I think R.E.M. is really, really interesting on this front because the guys that are in the band have these kind of connections to the South. They, they end up at least for some of their growing up years and high school years being in the South, but they've also lived other places um, for various reasons. So they have a kind of interesting relationship to Southerness. Um, and in the beginning, you can see them sort of trying to figure out what to do with that. And so mm -hmm. after they get signed to IRS and they're putting out their uh, Chronic Town uh, EP, and even before Murmur, there's this, this fear that Athens is over. You know, that, that music scene is done. You know, the B-52s have come and gone and all these people are putting out records, Love Tractor, Pylon, and now you're going to put out a record too and be another Athens band. And 
there's going to be a backlash against that. That's what the record company is telling them. And they're, they're fearing it too. And so you can find this little moment if you read the interviews that they're doing in 82, 83, where they're like, we're not an Athens band. Like we just live there. We don't sound like those other bands. We don't, we're not like connected really to the South. That's not our thing. And, and then of course they double down. What I love about REM is after that little moment of sort of dancing around with like, maybe we're going to do this. Um, then, they're, then they come, come out with, you know, Murmur with cut the kudzu on the cover. And then they come out with Reckoning, which is such a Southern album in so many ways. And even more so, I would say, Fables of the Reconstruction. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing about R.E.M., the way they're negotiating the relationship to Southernness. And I think um, they do a lot to create an image of, of a kind of Southern folk artist, bohemian ruralness that is a kind of, alternative South to the other images of the South that are circulating, especially what white Southerners can be at the time. Um, when people really are thinking of them as white Southerners as, as racist idiots in other parts of the world. Um, and I think that was a huge part of the appeal of REM in that period for a lot of their fans across, not just in Athens, but across Georgia, across the whole Southeast was that way that they were presenting a kind of a different way to be a white Southerner. That's R.E.M. song Wendell G. from their 1984 album Fables of the Reconstruction. I'm speaking with author Grace Hale about her new book Cool Town. It's a history of the Athens music and art and culture scene of the late 70s and 80s and beyond. There are so many other bands from around this time that are covered in the book. Love Tractor, OOK, The Barbecue Killers, Vic Chestnut, such a talented and archly funny musician. You spent a lot of time on him in the book. So what was it about him in particular? I, I was an undergrad and he had come to town. I, I didn't actually really get to know him till several years after that, but I encountered him one day um, sitting very near the arch behind a rickety card table passing out pamphlets. And he looked just like um, one of those um, proselytizing, you know, the preachers that always go down there and try to save souls. You know, I thought actually he was handing out the watchtower when I first <laughs> saw that he was sitting there. And you had to get really close to him. He was sitting in his wheelchair behind this card table. And he had a poster board with something written on it like God is dead or God doesn't exist. And he was handing out pamphlets about atheism. Um, but he was doing it in exactly the same way that someone proselytizing for Christianity would. And as someone who was creeping my way from agnosticism to atheism at the time, and I, I really did think that my, my best friend Jessica and I were the only atheists at Georgia, this was just amazing. I had no idea that he would go on to become one of my very, very favorite songwriters and musicians of all time. Had no idea even if it was a musician, but I thought, this is the best piece of performance art I have ever seen. <laughs> this guy is doing this. <laughs> at the University of Georgia in the early 80s. Um, it was profound. But I wrote a bit about Vic because I don't think he's recognized enough for his genius. Um, I think he's uh, one of America's greatest songwriters, um, a super, super talented writer. And, um, you know, certainly he's not unheard of. I'm not suggesting that. But I don't think 
um, that he's as well known as he should be. And he also was someone who was really nurtured by his early years in the scene. The, the musician that he becomes, the songwriter that he becomes is really shaped by the time that he spends in Athens. Um, and so um, that was a, there was, there was a chance to write about that, that, that was really important to me. I might could be accused of being painfully nostalgic But as of late, I'm looking forward to the future Though I've never been much of a planner That's Vic Chestnut's Panic Pure. It's from his 1991 album West of Rome, produced, by the way, by Michael Stipe of R.E.M. Do you think that environment that existed in Athens in the early 80s that supported the bohemian community and the music scene, do you think that still exists or have gentrification and the internet basically obliterated the conditions that allowed this Athens miracle to happen? Well, I do think it's so much different world, uh, the time, you know, the, the fact that people have um, the internet as a way to connect with other musicians and to connect with audiences and to sell their music. And that is, of course, completely transformed DIY music making everywhere in every genre. So that is a huge difference. And there has been gentrification in Athens, for sure. Interestingly enough, though, the gentrification in Athens is almost all about the university and not the scene. I mean, it's hard to get an exact quantification of that. I'm sure a little bit of it's to do with the scene, but a huge part of it is the university. All of the building of, you know, expensive student apartments downtown, for example, that's completely transformed what used to be the warehouse district and the old factory spaces of Stitchcraft when I lived there. But I think that Athens is not over by any stretch. You know, there are more bands than there ever were. There, there are at any given moment, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bands in Athens. And there is a kind of community of musicians and creativity. And it's now a, a community that has grown and changed in ways that it actually includes hip hop artists, for example. The Vic Chestnut Songwriting Award, many of in the recent years has been won by by hip hop performers. So it's a it's still an incredibly exciting, vibrant music scene. Um, everybody you t- everybody I interviewed, I interviewed almost 100 people for this book. And every person I interviewed told a story about the f- rise and fall of Athens music that coincided with the time period that they were interested in when they mm-hmm. lived there and played in a band and participated. Almost everyone, let me just say, with a few exceptions, one of them being David Barbie, who just said, you know, people move away, their interests change, and they're not part of it anymore. And then they think, oh, well, it's over. It's not over. It's just not their world anymore. Now you're teaching kids born decades later. I remember having my own, you know, the the boomer professors talking about how there used to be idealism and belief in the changing world when they were young. So how about now? Is that anything is possible? Magic still possible? And, And how do you communicate that to your students? Yeah, I think it actually, it's not only possible, I think it exists. I think it's out there happening now, and it's just not happening in ways that look familiar to somebody circa 1985, right? It's um, thinking about, for example, the kinds of incredibly creative culture around making of memes, internet memes and GIFs. I mean, to me, that has the same kind of spirit of creativity, of DIY, of 
we don't really think this is going to turn into a job, but we've got something to say and we want to put it out there in the world. Um, I guess that I would say that I think that these spaces exist. They could be nurtured and supported better. Um, we could value them more. Maybe we will after this time of pandemic being stuck without this kind of face-to-face -face community. Maybe we will value those kind of interactions more and nurture, nurture that more. But I think that it's presumptuous of me as an older person who goes to bed early to suggest that these things are not still going on. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't lecture my undergrads on that. I try to tell them about what, what happened in the past and what they can take from that forward. Grace Elizabeth Hale, what a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Virginia. It's really, really been a pleasure to talk with you about Cool Town. Thank you. That was my conversation with Grace Elizabeth Hale about her new book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. I spoke with her for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series. That is it for our show for today. We're going to leave you with another song from the Athens legend Vic Chestnut, who passed away in 2009 at the age of 45. In his honor, this is his song, Flirted With You All My Life. You're always right there with me. I flirted with you all my life Even kissed you once or twice On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Nyswanger and Jake Troyer are engineers. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. And I'm Virginia Prescott. You may have seen some news recently that On Second Thought is going to be on hiatus, at least until the end of the year. Well, it is true. State agency budget cuts have put a real crunch on GPB's production costs while we're trying to serve listeners with more news content, which has led to some really tough decisions. And it's a rough time for public radio stations across the country. Many people have let go of staff. I am really happy to say that all of us here at OST will be sticking around. I'm going to continue with these author talks and panels and events and community conversations, and we'll continue to produce stories and interviews for our digital platforms. So please keep an eye out for us there. Next week is going to be our last show for a while, though, so we sure hope you can join us for that. As always, thank you for spending some time with On Second Thought from GPB. GPB.